0: Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn with me to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5 this morning. Acts chapter 5. When you found the 28th verse of Acts chapter 5, you'd be so kind as to stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word this morning. Acts chapter 5, starting in verse number 28. Actually, i pick up a few words from 27 that lead us in, and it reads like uh, this. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intended to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God is exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey. Father, this morning, you've blessed our hearts through our time of worship and singing with you and of you and about you, Father, you've blessed our hearts in our Sunday school time together, Father. And now we ask that you focus our attention upon you, that we may hear your still small voice as you speak to our heart this morning. Let all that we do in this place bring you the honor and glory you so deserve. This we pray in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, you may be seated. You've been with us the last few weeks, or maybe you're just catching up this week. We've been looking at Acts chapter 5, the latter part of Acts chapter 5 and we've been looking at the distinctives of a of the church that is engaged in evangelism this evangelism through the church the distinctives if you remember, we came out of, of this story of Ananias and Sapphira and how Ananias and Sapphira had lied to the Holy Spirit. And that that led us into this, this fifth chapter. And if you remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira, they had, they had chosen to lie to the Holy Spirit about the selling of this land and the giving of everything to the church. And both of them, husband and wife, Three hours apart had dropped dead in the presence of the apostles because of this light of the Holy Spirit. And that led us into this, this church and looking at the distinctness of a church that are on mission for the evangelism of, of the gospel to the uttermost ends of the world. And the very first thing we noticed was purity in the church, the importance of purity in the church and God's seriousness about that purity in the church. From the purity in the church, we looked at the power in the church, how people were being brought from all over just so the shadow of Peter would pass over them in hopes that they would be healed because people recognized that God was working miracles in their presence. But we, we mentioned as we looked at the power of the church that week that the physical miracles weren't the real power. The real power was that soul that was changed from a, a death and in, in sin and a, and a destiny to, to a place called hell into life in Christ and a, and a destiny to a place called heaven. And the real power that was demonstrated in the church wasn't the healing of the physical bodies. It was the healing of the broken hearts when they came to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so from the purity and the power of the church, did we notice what happened next was this persecution in the church. How once again, Peter, John, and the apostles were wrapped up by the arms of the Sanhedrin court and dragged into court, and they were locked up. But the angel had let them loose in the middle of the night, and they were standing in the temple preaching, and they sent the guard to get them, and they brought them without any opposition into the court to stand before the court of the Sanhedrin and to answer, and to answer for a crime as they saw it. I read that crime to you there and in that 20... Uh, Eighth verse, that 28th verse, whenever they said, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? Remember the first time they were locked up, that was what they told them when they released them. You can go, but never speak in this name again. And it says, look at the result and look, you filled Jerusalem with, with your doctrine and intended to bring this man's blood on us. We talked about that last week. How even at the persecution, as Peter and John were preaching the truth, they truly preached the truth. They did speak in the name of Jesus Christ. And they gave the Sanhedrin the message that they got exactly what they asked for as they stood before Pilate and asked for Barabbas to be released. And they said, don't you worry, Pilate, about that Jesus. You can't find a reason to kill him. You can't find a reason to hang him on a cross. Don't you worry about it. Let his blood be on us. And what Peter and John did when they stood and preached the gospel was that this Jesus that you have murdered, that you hung up on a cross, is the Messiah that God sent. And guess what? You got exactly what you asked for. You wanted him dead. You killed him. His blood is on your hands. And now they're reiterating that. They, they wanted to make it clear that they had, they had told them never to speak the name of Jesus. They wanted them to understand this impact that was happening. You see, you're never persecuted when you're doing nothing. You're only persecuting when it's making an effect in the community that you're in. And look what they were telling. They're saying people are coming from all over to hear this message. The, The attendance in the temple, it's falling off. They're all going to your service. Look, look, the money that's been given to the temple, you guys are using it to support those that are coming from all over that don't have anything. You're giving to the poor. What about the temple? What about us? The money's falling off. People, people are believing the gospel message. Instead of listening to our religious message. <laughs> you see what they're saying? And, and the accusations against the Sanhedrin, against these priests, against, against these leaders, the accusations? Pe- people are starting to believe you. They're starting to, to think that's really us. You, you see what they're telling them here is, well, hold on a minute. You're ruining our reputation. You're ruining our church service. This telling of what you perceive to be the truth is just turning everything we have done and lived for upside down. But isn't that what the gospel does? The gospel is offensive. See, if the gospel doesn't enter your life and turn it upside down, you've never heard the gospel. Because without the gospel, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, without the gospel, we're dead in our sins. We're living a life in opposition to Christ. Without the gospel message, our father is Satan, not God. If the gospel message doesn't enter your life and turn it upside down, then you haven't heard the gospel. You see, how do Peter and the other disciples respond? Because our response to the persecution whenever it comes it says a lot about who we believe God to be. They'd gotten the message about this purity of the church. They'd, they'd seen it firsthand how serious God was that the church be, be pure and, and without sin and really deal with that sin even within but also individually with each person. They'd, they'd witnessed the power of God. They'd seen the manifest miracles. They'd seen people be healed. But more importantly, they had seen people's lives be changed spiritually. And that's when they really recognized His power. They'd faced the persecution before, and now they were standing facing that persecution again. And they were looking at that persecution. And and how did they respond? How did they respond? Look at what it says in verse 29. But Peter and the other disciples answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. You see... Wasn't that the same answer that they had given when they were confronted with the directive to never speak the name the first time? The first time they were taken in, they looked at that Saint andrew court and said, I tell you what, court, you guys are so smart, answer me a question. Should we obey God or should we obey you? And what the answer to the question is we should obey God, not men? You see, there's something they're being here that we need to be. They're being very persistent In what they do. Not only did they see the purity, the power, and the persecution of the church, but their response to that persecution was persistence in the gospel. Persistence in the gospel. See, I would say that they were so persistent, they were so persistent that they didn't consider what man wanted. They only consider what God wanted. The fact that they'd been persecuted for speaking the name of Jesus did not change. The command God had given them. You see, no matter what the Sanhedrin said, it did not change what Jesus said. That's the important thing to remember, especially in this culture and this climate that we're in right now in our world. It doesn't matter that the world's message changes to us. The message from our Almighty God never changes. The command that Jesus gave them and gave us never changes. See, what Jesus said to them and also to us, He said, go into all the world and make disciples. He didn't say if it was convenient. He didn't say if they opened the door and invited you in. He said, go. Go and make disciples. And what is it to make a disciple? You see, we oftentimes think that making disciples begins when a person comes to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. There's only one problem with that. That's not how Jesus discipled. That's not how Jesus discipled. Because how are they to know Jesus if they don't see Jesus? See, discipling starts long before a person ever comes to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Making disciples begins with an intentional relationship with those around us to show them who this Jesus is. And that opens the door for the sharing of God's plan for salvation in their life. The knocking on the door, the driving the gospel in their face with the big old thick Bible, for some, yes, may work. But I think if you think about your experience before you knew Jesus as your Lord and Savior and what it took for you to understand who he was, you're going to find out somebody was very intentional in your life showing you Jesus Christ that one day opened the door for the gospel message to be spoken into your heart. See, discipling starts when you fall in love with those who God loves. And my Bible says, God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Disciplely starts when we fall in love with those that God loves. It starts with us being in the world but not of the world. And it continues in our persistence in glorifying God by being the image of Jesus in the world and worshiping Him in spirit and truth. You see, we do those things the Bible calls us to do regardless of what the world says or does. And this will open the door to speak the truth. Of Christ dying on a cross for their sins and being raised from the dead that they might have eternal life. You see, look how it worked out for those apostles in verse 30 and 31. It says, the God of our father raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree, whom God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Instead of softening the gospel so that they would not be offended, or instead of softening the gospel so they would not be killed for preaching the gospel, they pressed in harder on the fact that these leaders were guilty before an almighty God. They didn't say, oh, it's okay, you've been in the church forever, it's all right, God will overlook those things. No, they pressed in on the fact there's only one way, there's only one Savior, and He has a name, and His name is Jesus. And see, they they pressed in on that, they reminded them that that God had raised Jesus from the dead. Now to us, that's not a big deal. To the Sadducees, that was a major deal. Why the Sadducees did not believe in resurrection? They didn't believe in resurrection at all. And here stands these guys in front of them saying this Jesus that is the Messiah was raised from the dead. We've got proof the tomb is empty. You see, they they remind them of that. It's it's significant because they don't understand, but it's, it's also significant for us because this resurrection from the dead makes all the difference in the world in the message of the gospel. It's all the difference in the world. See, without a risen Savior... There is no words of life that it says in verse 20, go stand in the temple, speak to the people all the words of life. If there is no risen savior, you can only speak the words of death of one hanging on the cross. And aren't you glad to know we don't speak of a dead savior, we speak of a living savior. He rose from the dead. So it makes all the difference. What gives us the hope that we can stand in facing persecution is a risen Savior. What gives us hope that God loves us? It's a risen Savior. What gives us hope that Jesus' work on the cross paid the penalty for our sin? It's the risen Savior. What gives us hope in eternal life? It's a risen Savior. Without the risen Savior, the gospel is alive. You see, no other religion has that claim. No other religion has the claim that you have of a risen Savior. All other religions can take you to the body of their Savior. You can, in Islam, go see Muhammad and Buddha. You can see Buddhism. And guess what? Even in the Catholic Church, you can see the saints of old. Whether they be in statues, whether they be in boxes somewhere, all other religions in the world can show you the important people in their religion. (laughs) We're the only ones. We're the only ones that can point to an empty tomb and say, I can't show you his body because he is not dead. He is alive. See, the tomb of Jesus Christ is proof that what he did on the cross saved you. Without the resurrection, there is no salvation. That's why it says you must believe in your heart that God raised you from the dead and confess with your mouth that. See, you must believe. They reminded them they were responsible for the death of Jesus. And knowing that God had raised him from the dead as proof that he was who he said he was, it indicted them on the fact that they had killed the Messiah that God had sent. You see, what a beautiful picture he's painting for them of their act in the murder, but God's saving grace in this resurrection. And then they tell them about this risen Savior. They don't tell him about what had happened only. They tell him about what is happening. Look at verse 31 again. And it says, Him, God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior. See, do you know what God's done with Jesus? Do you know what Jesus is doing right now? He's at his right hand. What does his right hand signify for the king is the hand of power. He's seated. He's seated to us doesn't mean much to the Pharisees, the teachers, the leaders. It means a lot because they never sat down in the temple until their work was finished. And when it says he's seated at the right hand, it's speaking volumes to them saying he's at God's right hand in the seat of power, and he's seated because his work is... Is finished. It also says that he was he was prince. If you remember Acts three fifteen, he had said to them the first time, "You have killed the prince of life." He's reminding them of this statement. Then he also said, "Savior," to reiterate the fact that Jesus is the Messiah that they sought. He is the Messiah that they were looking for for Israel. This Jesus was the Messiah. That's why he adds there in in the 31st verse, after he said Prince and Savior, he says to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. The apostles tell them the facts about Jesus, and it requires them to repent of what they believed. It requires them to repent of what they've taught. It requires them to repent of all that religious work that they had done, and then forgiveness would come. See, it's no different than our life. We talked about this morning in the the men's class that I am so glad that God saves by grace, not by works. Because if He saved by works, you know what I'd have to do all day long? I'd have to work to pay off the sin I committed today. I would never get yesterday's done. They would have to repent of that. They they wanted to understand that they had not traveled so far from God that God was not willing to forgive them. That's a message for us. There's not a soul in this room within the sound of my voice has traveled so far from God that he's not willing to forgive. You see, and they said that this forgiveness was not based on this national identity, this heritage of of Israel. It was not even based on them being a Jew, as they thought. No, it was based on their relationship with Jesus Christ. It was based on what they believed in this man named Jesus, this God-man. Persecution did not make them shy away from the gospel. See, persecution made them persist with the gospel message. They were more persistent and bold than they'd ever been because they'd experienced the power, the power of God and the saving of a lost soul. Church, we need need to remember that day that we were changed. We need to remember that day that we were bought from death and placed into life in Jesus Christ. We need to remember that day so much that we become bold and persistent in presenting that message, that gospel message, to those out in the world. But then comes this mic drop moment in verse 32. See, they pressed in and they were persistent in this message. They were, they were telling them these things. They were saying, you could be forgiven, but it's only through Jesus. And they... They back it up with some truth when they say in verse 32, and we are His witnesses to these things. See, they stand and declare that they tell a message of truth because they know it personally. They know personally that Jesus Christ can change a sinner into a righteous person. They know personally that Jesus Christ will put off the old and put on a new man. They know personally that life can be different. See, they stand before them and say, you can argue all you want, but we know personally. And See, they got the Great Commission. They understood that the Great Commission meant that since they knew it personally, they were obligated to go and tell it. They understood what Jesus had told them to do. They believed that it was God's will for them and for the church to be the witness of Jesus Christ's power in the world. And they so believed it that they backed it up with another promise. In that 32nd verse, they backed it up with another promise to all who believe in Jesus Christ, who confess Him as Lord and Savior, and demonstrate this belief through obedience to His command. Look at how verse 32 ends. It says, and so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. You see, they said, we're His witness. But even greater than that, the Holy Spirit is the witness. Of what has happened, what has been done, what Christ has done on your behalf. And you know the beautiful thing about that? The beautiful thing about that is they believe the truth that all who trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior will receive this Holy Spirit in them to stand and be witnesses to the world. Remember the upper room where they were told together and the Holy Spirit would come and it had come. And now they were saying, we are witnesses, yes, of of what Christ has done. And the Holy Spirit within us is also a witness of what Christ has done. And what is that mission that they were to do? What is that mission that the Holy Spirit is empowering them to do? See, they're being empowered to do the mission of being persistent in the proclamation of the gospel. So that God will be glorified. So that believers will come to be the image of Christ and that the world will be worshipers of an almighty God. Which is exactly our purpose. We talked about it again this morning. It's amazing how the Sunday school ties into this morning. This morning one of the questions that came up, one of the discussions that came up in Sunday school was if salvation was the end all, God would have taken us from this earth immediately, but he left us. Why? It's so that we can glorify God by being the image of Christ and lead others to be worshipers of Him. You see, it's a simple sounding thing, but it takes the power of God to accomplish. And that purpose can only be accomplished if we seek purity within the church so that the power of God, that Holy Spirit, can work through the church for salvation of all souls, not worrying about the fact that persecution is going to come to the church. Jesus told us that they hated me, they're going to hate you. He's already told us that. But if the persecution comes, we shouldn't back off the gospel. We should persist in preaching the gospel in the church. If there's one thing this world needs today, it's a church that will stand on and be a witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Backing away because of persecution will not change the world telling them about our Jesus, will change the world. The last thing, the fifth thing out of this list is the providence of God in the church. The providence of God in and for the church. In Acts 5.33, it says this, "...when they had heard this, they were furious." And they plotted to kill them. Then one of the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little this is one of those texts we read past we don't understand we have no connection to so we just blow past it but it's an important part of this text when the apostles uh said what they did to the sanhedrin the sanhedrin it says became furious remember they did have indignation now that indignation is moved to the fact that they are furious within when they get furious what they look for is to kill off the problem those sitting there and realize that that was the next step The next step was, if you have a problem, let's just do away with the problem. And they would do away with the problem by getting room to do away with the problem makers, much like they did Jesus. And it says that they plotted there to kill them. But what was going to stop them? See, God had a plan. God had a plan, and he was working through them with this plan, this mission. And So what was going to stop them? They'd taken the apostles from the midst of the crowd, and and there was absolutely no confrontation in that. They'd just gone, and they'd got them. They'd brought them in. No one in the crowd had had come beating down the door to get them out of prison when they were locked up. An angel had to do that. Uh, When they'd been put in that jail, no no one even came looking for them. They, They were all alone. There was no one there for their defense, apparently. We don't see any of that. So, so what was going to stop them now from, from being killed? What, what was going to stop this Sanhedrin from doing away with the problem? That's the beautiful thing about God. It's the beautiful thing about the text. He tells us in verse 34 how that was going to happen. He says this Pharisee named Gamaliel. Pharisee named uh, You know, that doesn't say a whole lot to us. But there was this Pharisee that stood up in the midst. The Sanhedrin, they were the ruling body and, and they were friends with the Romans. When you hear Sanhedrin, you think about Roman friendship. They, they gained their power by being friends with the Romans so they could, they could do things and have Rome on their side whenever they, they did those. They, they sought the respect and the authority that they could get from this Roman government. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they were respected, as it says there in our passage, by the people. They were more connected with the people, as it says in verse 34. For one of the Pharisees to stand up in the court of the Sanhedrin and take charge was a pretty big deal. It was a pretty big deal. For, for it to be Gamaliel was, was even a bigger deal. This Gamaliel was the grandson of Hillel. Uh, Hillel ruled one of the wings of the Pharisees, one of the, the sects, so to speak, of the Pharisees. And, and Gamaliel became his predecessor down through the years to. To run this side. The Sanhedrin then felt it necessary to allow Gamaliel to to be a part of the court so that they could have some connection to the people and not just the Roman government. So here were these Pharisees, especially this Gamaliel, as as part of this this court, so that they could have some sense of peace with the people, even though they were being friendly with the Romans. This this Gamaliel wasn't. Important to the story also for another reason. He, uh, he apparently understood who God was. Doesn't come out in this message this section so much, but, but he did. He, he was an important teacher of the law. As a matter of fact, over in Acts 22, we see his name brought up and you can see just how important he is because in Acts 22, as the writer uh, there is, is writing the story, he tells this story. It's uh, down in um, verse number 3 of 22 as he's writing. And it says, then he said, and this, this he that is saying here, I think you'll recognize in a minute. And he says, I am indeed a Jew. So there's this guy saying, I'm indeed a Jew. He says, born in Tarsus of Sicilia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel. Taught according to the strictness of our father's law and was zealous towards God as you will all are today. Who's this man that is speaking? It is Paul. It is Paul who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Whose feet did he sit at to learn about the law of God? Gamaliel. And here stands this Galileo up in this courtroom and he stands up. He was a teacher of this perfect law. He was zealous towards God. He led others to be zealous towards God. And As you know, this Saul that sat before him became Paul when this zealousness for God, uh, this pursuit of God ran him headlong right into Jesus. The pre-incarnate Jesus ran him right into this Jesus that he met. And, and Paul or Saul's life was changed into Paul, if you remember, with a name change. And he he ran right into him, and and Jesus made all the difference in this life of Paul. And and he was sent, as the Bible tells us, as Paul was, to preach to the Gentiles. Gamaliel had a part in the training of Saul, who later came to know Jesus for who he really was, and Jesus sent him to preach to the Gentiles. And that's how we got the gospel. Do you understand that? Up until this time, the message was preached to the Jews. Paul shows up on the scene. Gamaliel was an intricate part in the understanding that Paul had of who this God was. And when he bumped into Jesus, his life was changed. And now he's delivering the message to the Gentiles. So in the providence of God, he was present in this courtroom, this Gamaliel, who is respected by the Sanhedrin. They allow him to speak and and they listen to him. And look at what he says in, in verse 34. He says, send them outside for a little while. He says, send them out. And then in verse 35, he says, and he said to them, men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. He says, stop, think, think about what you're about to do. Let calm heads prevail. Don't make a hasty decision. Then he goes on to remind them of others. As you, as you read down through that text, through, through verse 36, uh, through verse 37, you start reading of this uh, Theodos and, and this Judas of, of Galilee. This, this Theodos, we, we don't know a whole lot about this Theodos, but we do know uh, a few things maybe about him. Apparently he thought of himself as, as somebody bigger than he was because it says that in that 36th uh, verse, uh, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody. He stood up claiming to be somebody. More than likely, in the connection of that time, he was claiming to be either the Messiah or the representation of the Messiah as cults had popped up all over this area. And Gamaliel reminds him of the outcome of this guy in verse 36 when he says he was slain, and all of those who followed him were dispersed. But then he goes on to verse 37 and he mentions this Judas of Galilee, which we have a little more information on. This Judas of Galilee was a leader of the zealots in the first. Century Palestine. He led a group of radicals that believed they, there needed to be action taken against this Rome. They needed to take up arms and overrun this government. They needed to do it for the Lord. They needed to band together and fight back against all this. There was these, these zealots. But he also goes on to tell us what happened with them. In verse 37, he was killed, and all those who followed him were dispersed. You see, Gamaliel was using these two examples to appeal to the Sanhedrin's human reasoning. To the human reason. Look at what he says in 38. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or or this work is of men, it, it will come to nothing. But then he goes on in 39. But, but if it is of God, you can't overthrow it. Lest you even be found to fight against God. See, he tells him, he says, logically, it's a good idea to just leave it alone and let it play out. Let's, let's see what happens here. If it, if it doesn't make it, we'll know it wasn't of God. If it does make it, we'll know it is of God. One problem with human reasoning. Look around you at the religions of the world. There are many that have made it in the eyes of the world, and they are not of God. Islam being one. You have to be careful how you use human reasoning to decide God's logic. You should use the Bible to decide God's logic. See, Gamaliel stood up and he gave him a good argument. He gave him a good argument, but instead of of giving him that good argument, maybe he should have gave him another argument. Maybe they should have gave him the argument, you know what? You ought to leave these men alone because they're preaching from God because we've seen the power of God in them and the message they preach is true. That would have been using godly logic. But look what happened in verse 40 very quickly. It says, they agreed with them. When they called the apostles in, they beat them. They commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. See, they brought the apostles in, and they they chastised them. They did what they wanted to do to them to make sure that they would never preach the name of Jesus again. God in His providence used a message of human logic to accomplish His mission, to have the apostles released to preach the name of Jesus. It's amazing, God's providential hand in all things. And the apostles knew why they were released. And it had absolutely nothing to do with human logic. How do we know that? Verse 41. Verse 41 said, so, so they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Wow. They left the court skipping, singing, rejoicing, praising God. They, they left a beating happy about it. They, they left this chastisement and a command to never say the name of Jesus again with a skip in their step. It wasn't because they said, boy, that Gamaliel had a really good argument. got us set free. No, no. They, they left rejoicing because they saw the providential hand of God in it and they were glad to have been worthy to suffer shame for his name. See, when they looked at the situation around them, they didn't say, woe is me. They say, wow. Christ is in me. See, when they saw what was happening to them, it wasn't, I sure wish this wouldn't happen. It was, I sure hope this brings God glory. You see, in their response to this providential hand of God was they rejoiced. How did this affect the church? Look at that last verse, verse 42. And daily in the temple, in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Wow. They continued daily with the mission of God, living out the gospel message in the lives of others that they may live out the gospel message in the lives of others. That's disciples making disciples making disciples. You see, they went about doing what Jesus had commanded them to do, which was go and make disciples. All the persecution in the world, all the beatings in the world, All the persecution that came on the church, on them personally, did not stop the gospel message. And we know that there were many added to the church and all of it was done by the providence of God. His hand and His finger were in all of it. See, when we get serious about the purity of the church, we will see the power of God in the church. Even in the midst of the persecution, we know we'll come on the church. And we are to have this persistent nature about the mission. We're to press into that mission. And we're the trust in the providence of God in all things. See, that's the template of a church on mission for God. What will be the outcome? What will be the vision for the church that does that? I'll tell you what more specifically. What's the vision for Morris Creek? What's the vision for Morris Creek and our purpose, and God's purpose in our heart? You see, I believe God has a vision. He has a mission for Church Universal that comes down to a church local. The vision for Church Universal is the same. But you can't wrap your arms around the universal unless you wrap your arms around the local. So I would say to you that the mission of Morris Creek, the vision of Morris Creek, is that God will be glorified in you they will be glorified in Curry, that he'll be glorified in North Carolina, and that he'll be glorified in the world. How? By the gospel transformation of generation to generation, leading the world to be worshipers in him and of him. You see, our purpose here is not about gathering on Sunday morning. It's about the life that we live in the image of Christ brings God glory and changes the hearts and lives of generations to come that this world may become a worshiper of our almighty God. So that lends the question, are you a worshiper of God? See, because it starts with you. It starts with me. Have you come to the place in your life that you've put your entire faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Have you come to realize that the place that you are living right now is a place that is sending you to hell? Because you don't have Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That's where it starts. That's where it starts, is really looking and saying, you know what, it's hard to be a worshiper of someone that I don't even know. So have you done that? Are, and if you have, are you committed to making disciples of others? Are you committed to living out your life and others that they may live out their lives and others and that life being the gospel message? Are you committed to come alongside one who's different than you, who speaks different, who looks different, who thinks different, but you know God loves them as much as He loved you? Are you willing to come along beside them and live in their life in such a way that the door is open for you to tell them what Jesus Christ has done in your life? Are you willing to commit to make disciples who make disciples? Are you willing to live out the gospel message in the life of others that they may live out the gospel message in the life of others? That's the mission. That's that's the how of the church. Do you have a vision? Do you have a vision that God be glorified in you, in Curry, North Carolina, in all of North Carolina, and in all the world? that the world one day will become a worshiper of our Almighty God. Because, see, that is the vision. Our purpose is to glorify God by being the image of Christ and worshiping Him in spirit and truth. Are those the central thoughts and ideas of your heart when you think about who you are in Christ? If not this morning, I hope that that takes root. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth.